0: Way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Be
1: well hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, May the twelfth, twenty twenty three. It's time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A show and i've got a good lineup for you today leading off in the ron paul liberty highlights i have how e verify is a massive surveillance threat to all americans a question and an answer to it does failing ukraine simply equal shifting to taiwan mm, you can bet it kind of does and look at what zero interest 0% interest and in quantitative easing have done for us all and thinking about economics we'll move on now to John Pugliano will have for you today a lightning round of economic and investing questions. And after that, Jeff Lawton will answer a question that Ken Berry answered in a different way. A couple weeks ago, right before I left, Ken Berry was asked about a grain called Phonio. And Ken, nutritionally, wasn't very interested in it. Jeff has another reason you probably won't be growing it. Totally different reason and expands a discussion on homegrown grains. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Then we'll have Ken Berry. Ken will be answering a question about is there a safer version of canola oil or any vegetable oil and should you be using any of it? Doc Bones will talk about what you could do to prepare for potential radiation exposure. Sean Mills will talk about designing a solar system For a pole barn that will house an RV. I find this really interesting because it's really just how you size and design a system, uh, a solar energy system. Paul Wheaton is going to tell you all about that permaculture technology jamboree that I keep talking about. And tell you what's actually going to go down there. And maybe you'll get excited and want to travel to Missoula, Montana this July. It's going to be a pretty awesome experience. I've looked at it. I can't make the travel time to go if you get to go, let me know so I can be jealous of you. It's going to be awesome. And then I'm going to talk about, and this builds on my my episode from yesterday, applying the art of war to the modern resistance movement. And not the idiots that think they're the resistance, that agree with everything the government and the corporatocracy says, our resistance movement. And this comes from a quote from Sun Tzu. The art of war teaches us to rely not on the likelihood of the enemy's not coming, but on our own readiness to receive him. Not on the chance of his not attacking, but rather on the fact that we have made our position unassailable. That is a war-fighting tactic. Absolutely. And Sun was big on going on the offensive, but he also always knew you could be attacked at any time by any enemy. And this mindset definitely works for true militant combat. But it also works for the type of warfare that we're involved in today. And it works through the, the creation of parallel systems, parallel economies. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, before we do, real quick, before I bring Ron Paul's team on. Last reminder, well not last reminder, but it's getting there, isn't it? Uh, exit and build 3. In Bastrop, Texas, May 18 to 22nd. That's this week coming up. The conference part, though, that's at the conference center is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's only three days for those things. There's farm tours the Thursday and the Monday on either side of it if you want to participate in those. Again, I want to encourage you to think about coming, and if there's any of the VIP tickets left, really think about snatching one of those up. The difference in the cost of the tickets easily, if not the whole ticket, it's probably worth it to be at the VIP dinner. Once I found out what the VIP dinner was going to be, which is what it was last time, I, I, I was like, I'm so happy I get to go. I would have been jealous if I would have turned down and not gone because the amount of beef, and I mean the best beef you've ever eaten that you will be served with will boggle your mind. And I'm not going to say what it is, but Friday night's going to be really cool too. Really cool. So... This is worth it for the education, the networking, and the entertainment. Uh, Please consider coming. Again, you're almost out of time to get yourself a ticket. Bastrop is near Austin, so if you're last minute looking for uh, airfare, one of the nice things is there's a lot, if you know, you're know you near St. Louis or something like that, it's pretty cheap even last minute to fly in to uh, Austin Airport, which is only about 35 minutes away from the Bastrop Convention Center. With that, let's go ahead and dive on into it. Ron Paul's team on eVerify failure in Ukraine, shifting to Taiwan, and what 0% interest in quantitative easing have done for us all.
0: This is from Mises Wire. The new immigration bill is a Trojan horse for E-Verify and is a threat to all Americans.
2: If you listen to some conservatives and libertarians, and they might say, well, this bill is not all that bad. It's sort of curtailing some of the things the federal government's doing. And, and it's true. But that's not unusual that they'll put a few good things in and put the member of Congress in a bind. I can't vote against that. It's improving it here, but it's destroying it over here. They better look at the big picture and what it means. And this is a massive uh, surveillance system. And the federal government will be running running it for all kinds of reasons that they'll, they'll want to
0: do. Well, the bill is called the Border Security and Verification Act of 2023. And I believe Ryan said it's going to be on the floor this week. I haven't looked at the floor schedule this week. Uh, But as you say, Ryan points out that buried in the bill, among other things, that are probably not that awfully bad, is this nationwide e-verify mandate. And it's been around, and a few states have adopted it as states, but this will be nationwide. It'll be a nationwide database. What it means is that you have to prove to your employer that the federal government allows you to work. Now, a lot of Republicans and conservatives are opposite of your position on this, because they say, we have got to keep those illegals from their jobs. We can't let them work. Not realizing that it's not just illegals that are going to have to show their papers to work. It's every single American. And, you know, back when Norm and I and the rest were working on this, we talked about how many false positives and false negatives there were. Uh, you know, you could be trying to get a job, and you you uh, enter your verification, and you're rejected for for error a government error reason you may not get that job a lot of republicans and conservatives would say oh ron you know this is wrong it's not going to go after a regular americans just after illegals well these are the same people that said oh ron the patriot act is only going to target terrorists they're not (laughs) not going to spy on us it's never going to happen you know what we're looking at is a hundred billion dollars now that have been authorized for uh for ukraine much of that money as we know has just gone up into thin air A lot of it is a um, money laundering scheme. The East European countries get rid of their ratty old MiGs, and they get F-16s, maybe even F-35s in exchange. They get rid of their junky old Soviet uh, tanks. They get shiny new tanks from the U.S., and on and on it goes. So a lot of this is a money laundering scheme. But even with all of this huge expenditure, things aren't going well in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is supposed to have won months and months ago, according to our great experts people like the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff that certainly isn't the case we're looking at Ukraine being ground down in places like bakhmut and elsewhere so it's not going as planned and so what does washington do when if one of its interventions are not going as planned well they do a slate of hands and say oh but what about over here and i think that's what we're seeing with china now this this whole taiwan or this whole ukraine adventure has been a disaster so now you're seeing a new washington consensus emerging and we can put this first one up, because this is a bill, and our, our, our good friend and colleague Norman Singleton sent this over to me this morning. Uh, so, Norm, hats off to you, bud. Um, exclusive, House Republicans call on European countries to support Taiwan and oppose a Chinese invasion. So, this is a new piece of legislation uh, introduced in the House by a uh, Republican from Ohio. Basically, what it's doing is trying to rope the Europeans, Dr. Paul, into the same horrible relationship with the U.S. over Taiwan as they were able to do over Ukraine. They destroyed the powerhouse of Europe which is Germany. Uh, They've destroyed the economy, inflation, energy prices, food prices all through the roof in Europe and now the Washington is saying okay Europe but let's try to do this even more with China and Taiwan.
3: Well Dr. Paul what we're trying to do today is to correctly identify the problem. Obviously there's financial turmoil but what can happen is you could misdiagnose the problem and your solutions will just make things worse, which is what government is notorious for. Uh, you know, So we have a Federal Reserve and I'm gonna state the obvious first. It should not exist. It's unconstitutional, immoral, but it does exist. Uh, no one knows what interest rates should be. The market should set them. But today's problems stand from 10 to 15 years of zero <coughs> percent rates And QE. Everybody should remember what that all, you know, what that was, because that created a decades worth of malinvestments, crazy investments. Anybody, just look at our warped economy. Look at what corporations are doing. It, they're losing money on this woke stuff, you know, and and they don't learn from the other ones. Another one will do it, and they'll lose tons of money. I mean, this is not a normal economy. This is all. And who's financing all of this nonsense? So this, these are all malinvestments, and malinvestments need to be liquidated. And that's what rising rates do. Rising rates puts pressure on all the stuff that was just dreamed up with 0% interest rates. So the problem, obviously, you know, it hurts. You know, there's, we're, we're living in turmoil. But the turmoil was inevitable the moment that they put rates at zero and then kept it there for 10 to 15 years and printed all those trillions of dollars. So the solution is not, you know, oh, stop, stop, start printing again. That'll just make the problems worse. So that's what we're trying to do today, pin the blame where it belongs on QE and 0% interest rates.
1: Yeah, the world's kind of jacked up, isn't it? Um, this e-verify thing, it's something that's really easy to sell to conservatives. It's to keep damn illegal aliens from taking my jobs. Uh I think verification of citizenship would be all you... would need. Ver- ver- if Verification that you are either a citizen or authorized to work if you're not a citizen. That would be it. If it's an authorized to work, yes, no, then it's arbitrary as to what the yes or no is. And all I could think of during that entire segment, and I was really surprised the guys didn't bring it up. COVID. Remember, remember when Biden tried to shove the COVID vaccine as an OSHA mandate on 100 million-plus Americans, even though he didn't have the authority to do it, and he almost got away with it. And he, in a de facto way, got away with it on a lot of people because a lot of employers simply instituted the policy because they said they had to, and it gave them cover. What if instead the government literally had a switch, and it could just say, can't work, can't work, can work, can work, can't work, and during COVID, they had simply said, if you do not file that you have your, your 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 COVID's jab, we'll just turn off your E-Verify and your employer will not be able to keep you employed without being in violation of federal law. Here's an idea. If you're worried about illegal aliens working, come up with a way that people that come here can legally work, first of all where we do know who they are, or what have you, if you feel that we need that. But here's a, here's a crazy-ass idea. How about you secure the frickin' border, and then we wouldn't have to worry about this shit the way that we do right now? How about that? Don't claim that you're trying to shut down employing illegal aliens when you're allowing 10,000 a day or more to come through the border. I just I don't buy it. I don't believe it, and I don't believe there could be any meaningful reform until the border is secured. I know some be like, "Jack is about to be a libertarian anarchist." Yeah, you know what? Get rid of the giant state apparatus of authority get away from the tyranny that we exist in get away from extorting people with tax money that is then given to people who don't work get rid of the welfare system corporate and personal welfare systems get rid of this get rid of all this f- fake fictitious bullshit that creates a parasitic class of non-workers and bureaucrats both and we can talk about open borders i'm all for it you you get rid of all that shit And I don't even think we need a border, right? Other than it's kind of a place where you're not in Mexico anymore, now you're in the United States. But we don't need a border security issue if you do that. But that's not what we have. That's not what we have. It's not what we have. We live in a techno-tyranny, and this is part of the control mechanism. So that's that's my bargain. You get rid of the state, we don't have to have borders as long as we have a state. And the state tells me what to do within its borders, then those borders need to mean something. Or we're in that situation where we are in so many major cities today. The police can do nothing to help you, but they can certainly do something to harm you. And we've gotten to that place in so many major cities. And I believe the de facto goal that they're trying to achieve, and this is part of it, is to make that everywhere. To make that throughout the whole freaking country. Anyway, um, yeah, Taiwan, expect that to be the next big focus, and expect us to pretend that Ukraine, that we, we, we didn't really do what we did in Ukraine, and that we really won, even though in the end the Russians are going to get what the Russians always wanted, which is the done best reason. All the people with their Ukraine flags, and I stand with Ukraine, and screaming and shouting at anybody that had any question about it whatsoever, you're a tool, Putin, they can't tell you what's going on in Ukraine today at all. They have no idea. But what's going on is Ukraine is being destroyed by Russia, specifically the eastern regions of Ukraine. Um, they are Ukraine is losing its young men, both to war and to immigration. Uh, people leaving and fleeing as refugees, et cetera, because they don't want to fight in the war. Lots of women and 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 children who are too young to fight are leaving. Uh, the boys are leaving before they come of age and they can be forced to fight. It is, a, it is a horrible, horrible thing happened in Ukraine that never had to happen. That never had to happen. Um, there was an agreement to basically let the Donbass region be autonomous. It was immediately violated by Kiev. And there's been a civil war going on. Well, there was a civil war going on there for over eight years before Russia invaded that region on its border, where it watched a a Civil War rage for eight years. I'd like you to think about a Civil War raging on the U.S. border with Canada, and after eight years we say, hey, we're putting an end to this shit, and the rest of the world says you have no right to, and how you'd feel about that. That's what's going on in Ukraine. I don't care if you like it. I don't care if Putin is a dirtbag. It doesn't matter. That is what's going on. That is what's going on, and no, Russia's not losing. Uh, that's why they keep wanting to send more money and more uh, more equipment and everything else over there. And, and Dr. Paul's right. Most of that money, most of, not a lot of, most of that money just disappeared. It didn't provide bombs or weapons or anything. It went in the pockets of Ukrainian oligarchs. Anyway, let's move on to something else. Uh, we'll stick to economics for a while. John Pugliano with a lightning round. Hello, TSP. Got a lot of
2: questions in the hopper. I'm going to go through these quickly. If I don't give you an adequate answer, feel free to get in contact with me and we can go into some more details on it. Okay. First question comes from Greg. He's asking about interactive brokers. Greg, I've never used them. I just know of them from, you know, what I see in the media and what I get from their advertisements. I'm sure they're a fine company and really all the name brand discount brokers provide very similar services Unless you have some very specific needs, I don't think it's going to matter really one way or another. This is sort of like the debate you hear on social media or when you're with a group of guys and they start talking about handguns and everybody has an opinion, whether it's a manufacturer or a caliber or their favorite platform. You know, and it really all comes down to skill. If you have poor marksmanship skills, it doesn't matter if you're using a Glock or a Ruger or whether it's a striker fire or a double action Because those are just tools, and the important thing is the marksmanship skills. I think you can draw that same analogy over to investing and brokerage companies. It really doesn't matter so much what brokerage company you're going to be using. What's really important is your investing skills and your strategies. So that's where I'd put your effort. Okay, next question. Nate, he's asking about what's a good age to start drawing Social Security well, Nate, to get a definitive answer on that, you know, there's some online calculators you can use. You can purchase some software from anywhere from probably 50 to to $100 that does an even better job of giving you some explanations of when you should take your Social Security. And then, of course, if you want to spend anywhere from probably a couple hundred to a couple thousand You can pay for a session with an investment advisor and really get some specific details. But the problem is, is that whichever of those sources you use, none of them are definitive because the flaw in all the calculations will be how long you're going to live. That's really the biggest factor that matters, and none of us know that. So before you do anything, I would just advise you to do a very simple back-of-the-envelope calculation, If you write down what your benefits are, they're going to be something like, you know, you're going to receive a certain amount at age 62 if you take it then. And that's only going to be 70% of what you would receive if you waited to, say, 67. And then if you delayed that until about age 70, you probably would receive about 124 or 125% of what you would have gotten at 67. If you chart that out... In general what you're going to find is that the break even point if you wait till full retirement at 67 versus taking it early at 62 that's going to be about a 12 year payback period and then if you wait till 70 versus taking it at 67 that break even point is going to be about 10 years. So bottom line without being super calculating here you got about a 10 to 12 year window before you break even if you delay your payments. And it really all comes down to if you think you're going to live significantly longer than age 80, then it probably makes sense to delay taking Social Security payments as long as you can, especially now with modern medicine. I mean, it's very possible that you could live well into your 90s, if not into being 100. And so you'd be well past that 10 or 12-year break-even point, and that would make a lot of sense. Of course, if you're in poor health or you don't think it's likely that you're going to live up to or much beyond 80 then it makes more sense just to take the money up front because you're never going to make it through that break-even point. So that's a real quick and simple way to think about it. The next question is from Sherry, and this is the age-old question of, you know, you're sitting on several hundred thousand dollars. You're waiting to purchase a home. What do you do with the money? Well, you know, in past years, I would always say just keep it in a safe FDIC-insured bank account. Over the last six or seven months or so, interest rates at things like CDs and Money market funds have gone up dramatically from what's being paid in your average savings account. So it only slightly changed my recommendations to people as to, you know, where they should safely be parking cash that's set aside for their home and they know they're going to use, you know, in a fairly short period of time in the next year or so. I mean, for sure you want to keep it someplace safe. That's the emphasis on an FDIC insured bank account. But with interest rates having gone up so much, I would also consider looking at things like a certificate of deposit. You can do that at your local bank. You can buy those in, you know, 3, 6, 12-month type increments. You can also do something similarly with U.S. Treasuries. However, for me and my money, I really like using money market accounts at discount brokers There aren't any fees. There aren't any redemption periods. Personally, I use Charles Schwab. There's a number of money market funds that they have, depending upon how much money you're going to invest and exactly what you want to put it in. But a good one, in my opinion, to use is SNOXX. That has no minimum investment amounts, and the money is invested in government-backed securities. The next question is from Emma, and she's asking about J&J stock and the issues they're having there with bankruptcy over the talc issue. She has money tied up in J&J that's part of employee bonus program, and she does that for tax purposes. And I think a lot of the worst has already been priced into the J&J stock. It looks like their efforts to have a smaller company spin off and go into bankruptcy have been denied, and so they're going to probably have to settle. But again, I think a lot of that is already you know built into the price of the stock. I'm not really super excited about the future performance of that stock, and I think it's got a lot of issues going forward as it reemerges as maybe several different new companies. So I would encourage you to look long and hard and see if you think that the tax advantages that you have by keeping a portion of your salary in the j stock really outweighs the market risk and the lack of risk mitigation you're receiving by having so much of your money concentrated in one stock. Remember the old saying about you don't want to keep all your eggs in one basket. Okay, speaking of taxes, last question comes from Michael. He's purchasing a business from a friend. He's asking about how to best structure the sale of that to minimize or mitigate taxes. We know, Michael, the taxes are not really your issue. You as the purchaser really want to be focused on not overpaying and receiving a fair value for value trade. It sounds like you've come to that point in your negotiations in terms of mitigating taxes. Probably one of the most effective strategies would be a payment plan where Smaller amounts of money are received over a longer period of time. You've already mentioned in your email that your friend doesn't want to do that, that he wants to get as much money up front as possible. And so then it really comes down to his specific situation, how his business has been established and organized, and how much of the purchase price is being classified as goodwill versus the purchase of inventory equipment and raw materials and cost of goods sold type thing. Bottom line, for both of your purposes, I think it would be well advised to sit down with an accountant and an attorney and make sure that the transaction is done in a proper manner. Well, As always, thanks for the questions. Until next time, this is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth studying Podcast.
1: Uh, great stuff from John. Huge variety of topics. Remember, I need uh, questions for the expert counsel to keep great content like this coming in. If you have a question for John... Uh, or any of the expert council members, remember the way to submit that question, send an email to jack at dot com, TSPC expert in the subject line. Give me your question in a single sentence that ends in a question mark. That way we know what the question is. Hit the return key a couple times, put a space in there. Then give me any details you think we need. Don't lead with details, lead with the question. It will make everything better. Trust me, been doing it for 15 years now. I am a, a professional, officially I think after 15 years, this is the way when it comes to getting great answers from great experts like we're so blessed to have. Now, last time we did an expert cancel show, I was going to say last week, but it's been like three weeks ago because I took a vacation. Uh, I had Ken Berry answer a question about a grain called Phonia. I had never heard of this grain before. It's another one of the new, uh, latest craze, ancient grains. It's a really small grain, by the way. And Ken basically said, nutritionally, it's just nothing but a bunch of carbs. Probably shouldn't eat it. But maybe it's good survival food, so plant it on your place and have it there. And I recently did an episode on a grain called sorghum. And I said I did that because it was a grain that was reasonable to harvest and grow at small scale if you insisted on having a grain. And I think what's really interesting now is when I got this question on uh, Fonio, it came in both as a nutritional question and as more of a tactical permaculture question. So I sent the tactical permaculture side to Jeff Lawton to see what his thoughts were on this very small grain
4: and on grains as a whole. This is what Jeff has to say about that. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan. And I've got a question here about uh, phonio, uh, ancient grain from Africa and uh, is it worth including in the homestead? Well, I don't really think so. Unless you're in a really dry desert or a really cold climate, that's where grains start to become useful because in both those climates you have a large part of the year when you can't grow much because there's no water. It's either frozen solid and there's no available water because it's too cold um, and you've got plenty of time on your hands or it's so hyper har- arid and hot there's no, no water and there's nothing much you can do so in those climates you've got time to um, work grain and get it to be edible I mean, really just talking about grass seed aren't we and if you ever tried growing your own homestead wheat or barley or oats and amaranth quinoa I've done all of that and I can tell you it's uh, if you're going to do it manually on a small scale there's just so much work involved for the amount of food value um, you've got to have a lot of time on your hands and if you're in a climate where you could grow other things like root crops and you know hundreds and even thousands of different crops you wouldn't bother growing grain it's just not it's just not worth it but if you've got a large part of the year where you're sitting around doing nothing looking after your animals which you've either got shedded up or you've got sheltered um and um, you're surviving on your animal products um grain you might have time to hand process grain and um i know this pretty well my wife's from jordan which is the uh one of the origins of wheat and she can do it all by hand um But when you're growing in the subtropics, something like that, or a temperate climate, um, it just seems ridiculous. Uh, So that's what I'd be looking at (laughs) if I were you. Um, And um, There are some interesting grains, though, like um, wild rice, which has to be harvested every day over 30 days, but you can grow a lot of nutrition in a small paddling pool for kids kind of thing. You don't necessarily need a pond. And there's wild rice goes all the way from Canada to Florida. And it's uh, not much used in homesteads. Um, That's not a bad one. Um, I think barley is the easiest of the conventional grains. It's a little bit quicker to harvest. And you can eat it green as a a barley soup. So there's other ways to process it. Uh, Wheat was obviously used. Uh, by the Romans to march their empire across landscape and then feed everybody with bread and pacify them. They kind of changed the diets uh, of people to bread eaters. And um, Oats were, were very much a northern climate, um, northern European climate. Uh, England was, was oats and oat cakes. Um, and you've got to have enough time in the winter to sit around and process the stuff. And it does have pretty good nutrition grain, but it's, uh, it's all about the processing time. Most homesteaders can do a lot better on um, other, other crops, uh, particularly root crops. A um, lot more food value for the amount of time you put in to get the uh, nutrition. So um, don't know about Phonio. Um, I've done Amaranth. Boy, that's a waste of time. That just takes forever. Um, I've done quinoa again. Um, they're, they're, they just take so long. Uh, you just got to have that amount of time in the year when you've got nothing else to do. There you go.
1: I'd say even in a hyper-arid climate where this grain would survive better than some other grains as a subsistence growable food... I would suggest growing something like lentils, which is, has its own challenges with harvest, but it's nowhere near as much, and then the uh, the roughage from the plant is actually good. Uh, fodder for, for livestock as well would be a better choice, and there's probably in 99% of the world better choices than either of those, uh, even if you're going to live on a carbohydrate-based caloric diet, uh, which of course I'm not, but I don't tell other people how to live as far as that goes. I, in general, find home-scale grain production to be counterproductive. That if one really wants grain, given that it commoditizes so well because it stores so well and it is so inexpensive, that the time and the resources and energy could produce things of higher value. And if you really want wheat around or barley around or rye around or whatever, go buy it by the 50-pound sack and store it properly. And if you store it properly, it will probably outlast outlast you, unless you're using it on a regular basis. Ah, good stuff from Jeff. Anyway, let's hear now, back to Ken Berry, on, is there a type of canola oil that's good for you, or is it just neutral, or is it just less bad, and should you be using any of it?
5: Hey Jack and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Andrew. Andrew says, I've been looking at food packaging and been seeing high oleic acid canola oil in the ingredients. From what I understand, this is better than regular canola oil. What are your thoughts and thoughts on soy, canola, and vegetable oils? So My answer to this is, I think you should avoid all vegetable seed oils. Wheat, rice, oats, corn, canola, soybean, any oil made from the seeds of plants that has to be chemically extracted is going to be too high in omega-6 fatty acids. There's not going to be enough omega-3 fatty acids, at least not the kind that the human body can use, which is DHA and EPA. Many of these oils will be high in ALA, but many humans have problems converting ALA into DHA and EPA. Now, high oleic uh, canola oil is slightly less bad than run-of-the-mill canola oil. That does not, in any universe, make it good. It's just less bad. And so I would avoid that and all the plant butters and, and vegetable oils and shortenings made of vegetable seeds. Hope
1: this answer helps. This
5: is Dr. Berry. I'll see you next time.
1: I I, I think that even where we disagree nutritionally, many of us within the prepper community, like some people are big on bread and stuff like that, if we get in any way appropriate with how we evaluate food, we should be all be able to agree that seed oils are bad, period. And they do not make nutritional sense for human beings. Because of the process that is necessary to end up with a seed oil and the sheer quantity of seed necessary to produce, let's say, a quart of oil. It it literally makes no sense to do this. And that would mean that nutritionally, ancestrally, we would have never consumed these particular types of fat in these quantities. Ken gave a great biochemical explanation, but I just look at it from an ancestral vantage point. There is no world in which you would consume Massive amounts of corn oil, or cotton oil, or canola oil, or any of this stuff. And it, it's not even doable in a world that exists in a sense of economic reality. No one would do this in a world that wasn't run by fiat money. Fiat money creates fiat food, and fiat food is basically an industrial waste product packaged as food and marketed by your government. Don't eat this shit. You notice the oils that we that we do recommend that aren't plant-based that aren't animal-based are all oils that require no effort and they're ancient oils, right? I mean, there's no big chemical process, there's no massive extraction method. It's not scrubbed. Olive oil has been used for thousands of years because the gentle press the oil comes out of the olive. Uh, It's a little bit different with avocado, but not really. There's no massive extraction product, and people. Uh, that live where avocados grow, eat lots of avocados, right? So I, I think there's both a biochemical explanation that Ken gave you, and then there's just an ancestral... There are certain foods that if you have to go through expending more energy than you'll ever get out of the food, they don't make sense as food, and they're probably not naturally intended as human food in that instance. Um, I remember Mark Shepard one time, he put it this way, he's like, you shouldn't be eating seeds and grains, you don't have a crop, those are foods that birds eat. You have a great big liver, you are supposed to eat meat. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, and again, even if you want to eat lots of vegetables, uh, carbohydrate-based caloric diet, etc., there's so many better options than this. With that, let's move on. i got another one here. This one is from Dr. Bones on dealing with potential exposure to
6: nuclear radiation. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Don, who writes... Hi, Doc Bones. Can you recommend any medical supplies I can keep at home for radiation exposure? I have little faith in the governments of the world to successfully navigate the Ukraine conflict, which, based on the number of involved countries, seems much more like the beginning of a world war. I feel confident in my food, water, and medical supplies, but do you think it's worthwhile to have some radiation exposure medicine on hand? I've never heard it discussed. What level of fallout can humans even survive? Thanks, Don. Don, certainly the situation in Ukraine doesn't increase our confidence that the world can avoid a nuclear exchange at one point or another. Just a few years ago, I thought such a thing highly unlikely. Today, well, not so much. The medical effects of exposure are collectively known as radiation sickness or acute radiation syndrome, ARS. A certain amount of radiation exposure is tolerable over time, but your goal as medic is to shelter your group so they receive as small a dose as possible. There are many units of radiation, but let's use the common one known as RADs. A RAD, or radiation absorbed dose, measures the amount of radiation energy transferred to some mass or material, uh, typically humans. A dose of 100 to 200 RADs delivered to the entire body in less than a day may cause acute radiation sickness but is usually not fatal. Doses of 200 to 500 rads delivered in a few hours, however, will cause serious illness with fatalities at the upper end of the range. Over 500 rads, death rates begin to approach 100%. There are three basic ways of decreasing the total dose of radiation exposure one limit time spent out in the open radiation damage is dependent on the length of exposure so leave areas where high levels are detected and no adequate shelter is available the activity of radioactive particles decreases over time after about 24 hours levels are usually less than one tenth of their original value Two, increase the distance from the radiation source radiation disperses over distance and effects will be decreased in proportion In nuclear reactor meltdowns, common evacuation patterns include a complete 10-mile circle or a keyhole consisting of a 2-mile circle and an additional 3 miles radiating from the direction of the prevailing winds. In both circumstances, adjustments are made as needed. And three, shield people to decrease radiation where they are. In many cases, people have to shelter in place. Shielding may decrease exposure exponentially, so it's important to know how to construct a barrier between your people and the radioactive source. I don't necessarily mean you need to live in a bunker in an old missile silo, but placing a barrier between you and the outside that would decrease the radiation penetrating your home, that's a good idea. Denser materials will give better protection. Shielding effectiveness is measured in terms of halving thickness. That's H-A-L-V-I-N-G thickness. This is the thickness of a particular material that will reduce gamma radiation, the most dangerous kind, by one half. When you multiply the halving thicknesses, you multiply your protection. For example, the halving thickness of concrete is 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. A barrier of 2.4 inches of concrete will drop exposure of gamma radiation by half. Doubling the thickness of the barrier drops it to one-fourth. That's one-half times one-half. And tripling, it will drop it to one-eighth. One-half times one-half times one-half, etc. Ten halving thicknesses drops the total radiation exposure to one in one thousand twenty-four. Different materials have different having thicknesses. Lead is 0.4 inches, steel is 1 inch, concrete, as I mentioned, 2.4, packed soil, 3.6, water, 7.2, wood, 11 inches, and so on. To take an example, let's say you're in a concrete bunker, 2.4 inches, halving thickness, as I mentioned. You would need it to be about 24 inches thick, therefore, or 10 having thicknesses to drop your radiation exposure to 1 1,024th of the outside environment. As for medical supplies, you should have a way to decontaminate yourself if caught outside. You need to remove fallout from clothing or discard them outside and rinse your body off with soap and water immediately. If you don't have access to a sink or faucet, use a wet, clean cloth or a damp paper towel to wipe the parts of your body that were uncovered. Pay special attention to your hands and face. I would have supplies to treat burns, I would have supplies to treat cuts from broken glass and other trauma available for those nearer the blast zone and materials also for oral rehydration. To avoid the cancer-causing effects on the thyroid long-term, take ThyroSafe, that's potassium iodide, 130 mg daily for up to 10 days for adults, 65 mg daily for children. You may not have to take it for the full 10 days, by the way, just so long as the radiation levels are dangerously high. There are other options such as Lugol solution and betadine which you would paint on your abdomen or forearm that could have some benefit as well. Amy, by the way, has ThyroSafe and these other materials available at store.doomandbloom.net. Other treatments for, say, radioactive thallium or cesium include the dye known as Prussian Blue. A substance known as DTPA binds to other radioactive elements like plutonium, curium, and others. Don, I hope you never need this stuff, but it's something to think about. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did.
1: All right, well, now you're all ready for World War III. I, I will tell you that... I would say the likelihood of nuclear detonation is higher today than it was three years ago. It's still one of the last things that I really worry about in my life. Um, I don't think this is going to happen. Um, Anything can always go sideways hard, but I think that we have bigger concerns. Um, Some basic preparedness for it makes sense, I guess, but don't... Don't ever latch on to one of these doomsday scenarios is the thing you're preparing for. Always tend to prepare for dealing without systems of support because there are a thousand ways that can happen. We've seen many of them in recent times. Moving on, let's hear about developing uh, a solar uh, energy system uh, from Sean Mills.
7: Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. And today I have a question for the expert panel, and it is, I'm planning a 20-foot by 40-foot pole barn with a metal roof to cover a fifth-wheel camper in an off-grid situation. The roof will slope to create a good surface for mounting solar panels at an angle and orientation appropriate for East Tennessee. I will be implementing rainwater capture on this roof. Are there any elements used in solar panel manufacturing that can leach out, making this source unsuitable? What considerations need to be incorporated into a roof installation to allow for maintenance? Should fixed panels like this be adjusted a couple of times a year for improved orientation? And is locating the lithium iron phosphate batteries in the attic a bad idea, or do they need to be protected from extremes of hot and cold? All right, Bobby, good job uh, sneaking four questions in there. Uh, So the first one, um, I would definitely suggest that you filter your rainwater before you're consuming it if you're going to use this as a potable source. Um, But there's nothing in the panels that would leach into the the water. Uh, The parts of the panels that are exposed are aluminum and glass, so you don't have any concerns there. Um, Number two considerations for um, maintenance I would make sure that you have enough room to walk above or below, above or below, any panel. That means you could put two panels butted up together, and as long as you could walk above the top one and below the bottom one, you would be fine, but I'd make a little gap in between the third row, for example. If you pack three rows together, it's hard because you can't access the middle row without removing the panel that's above or below it. Um, I would make sure that you have a small walkway at the top of the roof. Um, I normally put the top of the top panel about 12 inches below the peak of the roof, so that gives me a foot-wide path to walk down. Um, I would also route my upslope and downslope cables, so the cables that are running with the slope of the roof rather than across, on the opposite end of where I would be accessing the array. So if I'm, for example, going to tilt put this array towards one side of the roof, I'm going to go up on a ladder on that side of the roof. Um, I would put my ground wires and my wires running from array from uh, array to array on the opposite side, and that's just so that you don't have a tripping hazard uh, when you're walking through there. All your other wires should be underneath the panels running across the slope. Um, I would make sure that I got rails and clips that create a continuous ground so you don't have to run ground wires in between every panel. Um, that's a pain in the butt. And it's, you know, you know, if you get the right hardware, you don't have to do it. You just run wires in between the uh, panels on the very end to ground the arrays to each other. <clears throat> I would not suggest mounting panels on a sloped roof in any configuration other than flat with the roof. So that means if your roof's going to be 512, which for Tennessee 512 is a pretty good one, uh, then that means your panels are also 512. They stay there. Uh, metal roof mounts are not designed for loads that would be imposed by angled mounts. So to explain what I'm saying there, if I have a 512 pitch roof was about 28 degrees, and in the, in the winter <clears throat> I tilt those panels up, and I have some sort of device that allows me to t- tilt those panels up in the winter so they get more direct angle of irradiance, if I have a windstorm that comes through there, and if you're in East Tennessee, you know we get those in the winter. Um, when the wind hits the face of that panel, it is going to put excess pressure on the bottom mount Okay, that that mount's not designed for. If the wind were running alongside the panel, so across the roof instead of into the roof, they can, it can actually create a suction effect on either the front or the back. That those mounts are not designed to take so you definitely want to make sure that you've got your your uh, panel flat to the roof typically you've got a couple of inches of clearance because of the mount but you don't want much more than that you don't want a bunch of air getting underneath there and creating uh, moments that the uh, roof mounts are not meant to take and then is locating the lithium iron phosphate batteries in the attic a bad idea yes Uh, they can take a wide range of temperatures but they last longer if they're protected from extremes. So lithium iron phosphate battery will actually operate in 140 degrees Fahrenheit, um, but it's going to degrade internally much faster at those temperatures. So if you're building this 20 by 40 foot pole barn, if you could kick off maybe one of the sides, so you've got your full 20 by 40 to park the fifth wheel under, um, maybe you kick off one of those sides and just build a little enclosed, Uh, structure, house all your components there, make it weather-tight, make it water-tight, and, uh, you know, it it doesn't need to be a full height there, you know what I'm saying? You can just take that roof slope and continue it out another five feet, maybe just a little five-by-five kind of closet there, and you can put all your charge controller, inverter, batteries, um, everything right there in that same spot, have a plug on the side of that for your generator to plug into, so that's how I would go about it. Uh, Hey, if you want any help designing or sourcing the components for this system, shoot me an email at sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmysolar.com. I have developed several pretty good, cost-effective sources for material in Tennessee, and um, we've been able to save some folks quite a bit of money kind of going wholesale with those things. So shoot me an email if you're interested, and uh, you guys keep getting those questions into me, and I'll keep getting them answered.
1: Great stuff from Sean. Now let's hear from Paul Wheaton, the Yeti himself, the Duke of Permaculture in Missoula, Montana, about this permaculture technology jamboree that I've been telling you about for weeks. And they currently have a BOGO sale. Buy one, get one free on these tickets. This is an incredible event, but let me let Paul tell you all about it.
0: Hi, Jack.
8: Per your request, here's some more info on our permaculture technology jamboree starting in about six weeks. The general format is that we have a whole bunch of instructors, each with their own project, sometimes several projects in parallel. Attendees can wander from project to project and observe or participate as much as they want. Last year, with seven instructors, we built... Prenicky hinges, you know, like in the movie Alone in the Wilderness. Uh, mycelium insulation, where you can grow your own insulation. Fireproof insulation. Really kind of amazing. Uh, a spinning wheel made from bicycle parts. A massive culture, uh, where you get to drive the excavator to bank it. Uh, we put up a million calories of food, or we tried to put up a million calories. I think we fell a little bit short. Uh uh, create a robust apothecary. Direct to uh, solar to pump. So this is Holtzer's Holzer's favorite way to do solar is uh, you connect the solar panel directly to a DC pump. And we did that. Uh, uh, Spring Terrace. This is where you are trying to get water from dry land. Uh, build your own take-home rocket mass heater core. Log beehives. Swarm catchers. A beautiful shaving horse, uh, using animals to seal a pond, sheep shearing and wool processing, uh, a log picnic table. This was my favorite. And there's talk about trying to do another one this year that's even better than the one last year, although I think that's going to be tough to beat. But there was uh, some metal screws used in the one last year, and we could try to avoid any glue or metal in a lot of our projects. And there's ideas about how to do it without any metal uh, uh, fasteners of any kind. Uh, uh, a rocket kiln. This was our big project last year. A rocket kiln that turned the ceramics industry on its ear. Uh, uh, $35 to $80 worth of electricity or natural gas can be replaced with a few sticks. So, uh, it's, it's, it's it turned into this enormous thing in the ceramics industry now. And now tons of people are making these, uh, rocket kilns. Uh, we also harvested on property clay and we made mugs, bowls, plates, and other stuff. Now, this year, we're going to have twice as many instructors. And some of the projects we're looking at so far are to finish the rocket hot tub. We have the all-aluminum, pure aluminum tub, and we have most of the rocket part done. Uh, we're going to do a lot more food preservation with uh, a strong focus on ultra-long-term food preservation, like beyond 10 years. Uh, uh, we're going to put some uh, really put some time into the uh, solar food dehydrators. We've got two of them. One... Uh, that's angled well for midsummer and one that's angled well for the fall and has a rocket assist. Um, we're going to try to build a sepulcher style root cellar in a day. Uh, there's also talk of building a freezer wafati. So this is something that will hopefully remain, keep its contents frozen all summer long in Montana. Uh, either of those two projects would feature a lot of roundwood timber framing. We're also talking about a skittable bodger shed. Uh, a lot of people are really keen on our skittable structures. We have lots and lots of skittable structures. Um, an indoor rocket oven, although this will be in our outdoor kitchen, it'll be a fully covered kind of a thing, but a, a full rocket oven, and it could be it'll be designed top to bottom for full indoor use, but it'll be inside of, we're going to be building it inside of our outdoor kitchen. Uh, A giant moon gate. So this is where you stack rocks in such a way that you could walk through it. But there's two projects in the queue. One with uh, a hole that's two and a half feet. And the other one with a hole that's six and a half feet that you could walk through. Um, And probably at least two other dry stack projects. So we do a lot of dry stack stuff here. Uh, A trom wall. Lots of solar electric stuff, uh, probably something portable. We've got, uh, uh, the idea of a trailer getting mounted with stuff, but it's like, can we make something even smaller than that? So something that might be mounted more towards uh like on a hand truck or something. Um, we're going to, uh, drop some trees and put the wood through our solar electric sawmill. Uh, some people uh talked about having some projects of building your own foring, um, Hugel culture, more hugel culture and excavator stuff. I mean, everybody loves to drive the excavator. So we have a 14 ton excavator, so it's pretty, pretty good sized excavator. And, uh, we get, we let everybody do at least three scoops. And if you're actually good at it, we do more. But if you're gonna build a hugel culture, you get to do as many scoops as you need to, to build the hugel culture. Uh, and usually when we do the PTJ, there's always people working on some skip BBs. Uh, so there's gonna be plenty of opportunity for that. Uh, let's see, uh, making a wool mattress. So we've been accumulating a lot of, uh, organic, uh, raw wool, and we're talking about making a wool mattress, uh, making some window quilts. We've had real good success with window quilts here, and we can, you know, kind of, we've got a few windows that don't have window quilts yet, so there's some talk about making a bunch of window quilts, uh, making wood ash cement, and then using that wood ash cement to make flow forms. Uh, the, uh, we're gonna have a, again this year, the, uh, it was a big success last year and we've had a lot of requests of people coming this year for the Bodger track. So we're gonna be making a bunch of stuff from green wood. So we're gonna go out, cut green wood, and then build stuff out of it. Mostly hand tools, zero glue, and hopefully zero metal fasteners, um, spoons, boxes, counters possibly possibly a sink uh some shelves benches things like that uh the three log bench is a very common one uh giant outdoor log stairs so that one's definitely a big project and uh but it'll be outdoors which is you know got more challenges if you're going to do wood outdoors and part of it is to make it with really 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 big wood and we have an excess of trees so we're going to go drop some trees and build some stuff. And hopefully it's going to be this stuff where we use dry pegs and green logs. And so that way you don't need to use glue or fasteners. Uh, natural paint. We're going to have several of our instructors, our experts in natural paint, natural plaster, natural dye uh, from stuff foraged on site. And, of course, lots and lots of cob or Adobe, uh, the, which is also known as the Natural Builders duct tape. Nicole Sauce is going to be here from Tennessee. So everybody that wants to meet her, come on, meet her, come on out. Um, and because of our massive success from our Kickstarter about this stuff, we are using those funds to largely subsidize this year's PDJ. So we have extended the early bird price and we are currently offering a BOGO. Buy one, get one. So buy a ticket for you and bring your bestie or your spousal unit. In addition, we're thinking that we want to record Everything and make another movie. So we have set things up so people taking video of what's being built could harvest a few thousand bucks. We have a few tickets left. I hope these go to your peeps, Jack.
1: Like I said, I, I can't break away from the travel in July this year. I've looked at it, and it, I just can't. Uh, but if you get to go, let me know so I can be jealous of you because I would really love to spend you know, a week or so up, just Montana in general that time of year. It's just gorgeous. Uh, but the cool people, the cool projects, the world-class instructors, and Paul's a great dude too. So if you get to go, let me know. And if you do go, make sure you use the link in the show notes today or on my website or the one that comes in the Daily Mail or something like that. So I get credit for it So at least I get that out of the deal With that let's turn to my segment today I'm going to keep it brief I think we had a pretty good show so far You don't need me to talk for too much But I want to again give you this quote From The Art of War By Sun Tzu The Art of War teaches us to rely Not on the likelihood of the enemy's not coming But our own readiness To receive him Not on the chance of his not attacking But rather the fact that we have made our position Unassailable This is the challenge that we have right now in what I consider to be the modern resistance movement. I consider real-world permaculture to be part of this. I consider libertarianism to be part of this. Modern anarchism to be part of this. The overall modern liberty movement, as long as we're not confused neocons that think we're on the side of liberty, to be part of this. Anybody that simply says, I refuse to accept that which you say I must accept. I am going to live my life as a normal human being... I will not eat the bugs and be happy. I will not move to the giant cities. I will not have my movements always monitored. I will not submit to this tyranny, this global tyranny that's being rolled out. That's the resistance. But we must not rely on the likelihood that the enemy won't come. The enemy's here, and he's advancing more every day. The enemy is going to bring the central bank digital currencies, and it's why, in spite of the fact that the majority of this audience refuses to accept it, I refuse to stop telling you about Bitcoin because it's your only real answer to that weapon of the enemy if you wish to become and make your position unassailable. The only way that you're going to be able to afford to eat good, nutritious food in the future is to produce at least some of it yourself and probably source some of it locally. Otherwise, it will be the true elites that are able to feast upon fine beef and you will eat your gruel and your crickets and your millibucks. You have to make your position unassailable. You have to get out of the cities now before you are trapped within them. This movement is not just to push people in, but to trap people in. This movement toward universal basic income, you watch as they roll it out, and you watch it be adjusted for geography. Meaning if you live in a big city and you move out of the big city, your UBI go down, number go down. Just one example. They're going to keep pushing up the age for Social Security because it's bankrupt. It is a bankrupt system. You know what? We we almost crossed this year. A number I've predicted, and I originally predicted it by 2025, so it looks like I will get that prediction right. One trillion dollars in interest payments per annuum on the national debt. A trillion dollars per annuum. That means that right now, and it's 980 million or something, 940 million, it's just shy of a trillion. We didn't hit it yet. But again, I picked 2025 was the date I said it would happen by. I said that back in like 2012. People told me I was crazy. That means that going forward, the United States government is going to pay a trillion dollars in interest. A trillion dollars of the annual budget is just for interest on the debt. We get nothing for it. Nothing for it. Zero. And the only way to pay that debt is to print more money. They pay it from taxes. We they don't collect enough taxes to pay it. The taxes pretty much pay, the in the personal income tax pretty much pays for the interest on the debt. So I don't make the rules. I'm just telling you. And if you add in the new money borrowed, the personal income tax doesn't even cover the new debt plus the interest. All the things they say that you pay taxes for, you don't. You don't. You pay taxes to prop up the fiat system that allows them to extract your wealth on an ongoing basis because your position, if you are all in U.S. dollars, is certainly not unassailable. They control the supply lines that bring the food to the stores. They control the electricity that keeps the food stored in the stores. They control the cost of the gasoline and the roads. You don't think the enemy is coming? You're wrong. The enemy is in our midsts. The art of war teaches us not to rely on the fact that the enemy won't come, but our readiness to receive him. How ready are you in this fight? This fight, and this is nothing against guns, but this fight by and large cannot be won with guns. I'm telling you right now, they are trying to bait people who are liberty-focused into violence right now so that they can declare war on us outright. That's the goal. I'll invoke Martin Luther King when he used to talk to people about the fact they were going to march tomorrow. We have to be better than them. You know, you have all these supposed civil rights demonstrations going today where people are burning shit, running around with their pants hanging down to their ankles and their ass hanging out, etc. Martin Luther King and his followers marched in three-piece suits because, in his words, we have to be better than them. We have to be better than them. Violence is only used to put back violence done upon us, and the violence should be in kind. And I actually believe in the plus one of violence. You know the the the, the meme that's kind of been going around a lot lately. Fuck around and find out, FIFO. Fuck around at a five, find out at a five. That's not me. I'll be honest. You F around with me at a 5, you get a 6, but not a 10. You a 3, you get a 4. Just enough to let you know I can, I can punch back harder if I have to. But that's not how you win this long, slow war. This is a war of attrition. The number one way in the history of military warfare the war of attrition was won is starving the enemy. You starve out the enemy. You lay siege to the city, to the castle, to the fortress. You cut off supplies. And when people get hungry enough, they will surrender to anyone. That's the history of warfare. Even modern warfare. It's what we did to Japan. It's what we did to Germany in World War II. By the end of World War II, the German government was explaining on the radio to citizens... How to stretch their their bread flour ra- r- ration with sawdust. Sawdust. How much sawdust you could put with your flour and still make bread that you could choke down and eat. That's a nation on the verge of surrender. When you can't even have bread, you're on the verge of surrender. Japan, I think we dropped the atomic bomb to prove it worked and prove we had it. Japan was weeks from full-on surrender. The story that without the atomic bomb, there would have been millions of lives lost on both sides. We have, no. Japan was on the brink of collapse. Certainly we didn't need both of the atomic bombs dropped. One would have been sufficient. One would have been sufficient. We had firebombed Tokyo to ashes. We killed more people with firebombing in Tokyo that were killed by the atomic bomb, either in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, I don't know if combined, but either one individually. We we killed more civilians in Tokyo over time with firebombing. This is how warfare is fought, and the people that are fighting this war against you today are the same one that fought those wars. Starve the enemy. That's the mindset. They will eventually crumble and comply if we starve them. How do you starve people that grow their own food? How do you take away the economic capability of people that develop a parallel economy and don 't use your money and use an uncensorable, unstoppable, borderless, weightless, programmable form of money? Well, you don't they've made a position that is unassailable, and the only thing that really makes us weak is is when we develop a propensity for violence, we must only and I mean only act in defense. Might that ever change? Might there ever be an open, active, revolutionary type of war in our future? Unfortunately, I can't say no. But it's a lot less likely. They've written the plan down. Pieces, parts all over the place. You can read Agenda 2030 and see what the plan is. You can read the charter of the World Economic Forum and you can see what the plan is. You can look into what is being put out by the Council on Foreign Relations and you can see what the plan is. The plan is not hidden. It is not some dark, nefarious, hidden conspiracy. They're quite open about it because the average idiot can't comprehend it. It is as if you handed them a tablet written in an alien script. They don't know what it says. So when you read it to them, they don't believe you can read it. So they don't believe you. And they think you're crazy. Leave them behind. Build your parallel systems. We must not rely on the likelihood the enemy is not coming, but our readiness to receive him. Not on the chance of him not attacking, but rather on the fact that we have made our positions unassailable. We must make our positions so costly for the state that we're not worth it, and so defensible that our defense is a matter of the normal course of our life. And here's something I said many, many years ago for the first time. Probably 2009 the first time I said this. And I will say it again now. Will you stand or will you kneel? By the way, it's long before the whole Spartan movie came out that I said that. Right? This is gonna, that's going pro- to be a problem. You see, that's going to be a problem. And that mindset was already there. I won't kneel. And that's what they want. They don't want you to kneel physically, though I'm sure some of the psychopaths in our government would kind of get their jolly rocks off on that. They want you to kneel symbolically. They want you to submit to them. They want you to accept the universal basic income to the point where it becomes integrated in your life and you can't survive without it. They want you to follow whatever mandates they decide that you should follow get shots when you're told to, wear things on your face when you're told to. That was a trial to see how obedient the sheep are, and it turns out the flock of sheep that they've raised is far more obedient than even they believed. And the sheep have become self-policing, so it is necessary for us to make our positions unassailable, because the enemy is definitely going to attack, because the enemy has already begun the attack. The beauty is in a long, slow war, we can act like the CBs. If you don't know who the CBs are? The people that build shit. Basically combat engineers. We can build while the war's ongoing. Our own fortresses, our own citadels. And these citadels aren't as they've been fabricated in the mind of some, some giant walled city. Modern warfare technology have made walled cities pointless. The walls we must build are technological, they are ideological, and they are biological. We have to use nature to build systems along with technical systems that resist the advance of the state in our own individual lives. You're not going to vote it away, you're not going to petition it away, you're not going to protest it away. You might as well stand in front of a giant grist mill at the bottom of a, of a grain mill being turned by a team of six Clydesdale horses and try to stop that grist mill. To stop that millstone with your own body as stop what's happening in the world today from happening. What you have to do. In the words of Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. Alright? Best block is no be there. We have to make our positions unassailable by moving out of the way. Or in the words of John Bush with his movement, through exit and build. Exit their system and build our own. We have to make our positions unassailable. With that, hope you guys enjoyed this week of shows I did. I'm happy to have been back I thank you for tuning in this week. I will be back on Monday with another live show. There will be some uh, rewinds next week, but I think I have enough content in the hopper right now to knock out over the weekend an expert panel show for uh, Friday. Monday and Tuesday I'll definitely do a show If I already have a lined up interview on Wednesday, which I'm not sure that I do, then I'll have to do it. If not, I might do a rewind Wednesday, Thursday, or just Thursday. I need to make sure that everything on the property is spick and span perfect so my wife has the easiest time of dealing with all the systems uh, when I'm not here. As far as like the aquatic systems and all of that, and taking care of the animals and watering the plants and everything. I want to make sure everything's up to snuff when I leave out of here on Thursday. Uh, but I hope some of you are coming and going to come hang out with us down at Exit and Build at the end of next week. But I will be back Monday. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping, starting where? tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, Are
5: they going to bail you out?